Hey, well, good morning, uh, New Life Fellowship. Really good to see you all here at church, and welcome uh, via online as well. Um, just you know, I I don't I told this to the to the 9 a.m. service and to the 12 p.m. service last week, but I always feel like I have to come marching out to that song. I don't know, like da da da. Um, I don't know. That's just my own little thing. But um, hey, just so glad that you guys are all here worshiping with us today. Um, uh, you know, just want to give you guys quick updates on uh, just COVID and what we're doing. Um, just we're so thankful again to everyone who stayed at home. Uh, all the messages that I got. Uh, thank you so much for just protecting the community. Uh, I think it's it's a communal effort here. You know, it's not just what we as a leadership will do to kind of keep this a uh, safe space, uh, uh, but also. Uh, just your own uh, integrity and being able to say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to stay home this weekend because of symptoms or because I was exposed. So thank you to all of you who are doing that, especially of those of you who are worshiping at home today. Uh, and, you know, as, as a staff, we're, uh, we, we got a hold of some testing kits, and so we're regularly testing ourselves, uh, making sure that we are, uh, you know, virus-free. Uh, you know, again, KN95 masks, if you want them to, to be able to worship in the sanctuary, uh, we're more than happy to give those out to you. We're asking all of our volunteers to wear that. Uh, and also just increased ventilation here in the sanctuary. So uh, just things that we're doing as well, uh, and, and hopefully with your participation, which you guys have been doing really well, uh, you know, we can keep this area just a place of worship and not fear. And so thank you again for all of your efforts. Uh, you know, I, I told this in the last service too, but uh, I've actually never had any pushback against some of the safety things that we've done here. Uh, no pushback, and so uh, that's thankful to all of you for just being so loving and gracious, especially during this pandemic season. So thank you for that. Uh, well, let's dive into our sermon for today. We've been in a sermon series called The Temptations of Christ, and um, we've been studying uh, the temptations as a whole, and then last week we looked at the first temptation, and today we're going to be looking at the second temptation uh, there found in verses uh, 5 to 7. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open it up with me to Matthew chapter 4? Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 5 to 7 uh, at home as well, if you can open up your, your Bibles. And at this time, if we're able, would you rise to read God's word uh, at you at home as well, if you can rise. I know it's a little strange, uh, but if you're cooking bacon, just maybe let it burn a little bit longer and then just look here and, and read the word together with us. We just do this out of reverence and honor for God's holy word. Uh, I'll read this for us. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, if you could respond with thanks be to God. Uh, and then I'll pray for us, and then I'll seat you after the reading of God's word. Uh, this is uh, moving on in the second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the word of the Lord. Let me go ahead and pray for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your fight and your battle against the devil, against the schemes and the lies of the enemy. And Lord, we pray now that you would teach us, that you would mold us, that you would help us, Lord, to defend ourselves against the lie of the enemy. Uh, Lord, we pray that through this work, we would glorify your name and that we'd glorify your church. Uh, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. Um, well, let's, let's dive into this. All right? We have three points as we normally do. The, the first point is going to be the power of isolation. Uh, the second point is the lie in isolation. And then finally, we're going to be looking at the power of God's love. Okay? So let's dive into our first point, the power of isolation. 
Uh, let me start off with some free marriage advice. I did a wedding last night, and so I, I think marriage was just on my mind. But uh, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever seen that film, My Big Fat Greek Wedding in 2002. Uh, if you have seen it, it's a great uh, little film. But there's a, a famous line from that movie. Uh, the mother of the main character, Tula, uh, is giving, um, is, she's having issues with her dad. And basically, the mom tells her uh, this phrase or this line as she's having issues with her dad because her mom is going to go ahead and talk to her dad. And she says this, the man may be the head, but the woman is the neck, and she can turn the head any which way she wants. And isn't that so true, right? At least for me and my household, uh, if I want to go golf, I have to make sure that my wife is in a great mood, a fantastic mood, and I have to go get her permission. And what I learned early on is it's not about how I ask my wife, it's about when I ask my wife, right? I can ask her, and I tried this actually, I tried to ask her in a very pleasant voice, like, hi, can I, can I go golfing? Uh, you know, doesn't work, doesn't matter, okay? It's when she's in a good mood. It's when she's had a good day at work. It's when I've cleaned the kitchen and done all the dishes and played with our kids. When all these things have occurred and she's in a great mood, that's when I can ask her. That's when I can strike. Um, how we do things is important, but when we do them is also just as equally important. And, and my sense is that with Satan and with the devil, when he lies to us, the same is true. Last week, we talked about how it is that he goes about tempting us. And it's through lies. It's through ideas that he sows into us, that he then allows these ideas to grow and to grow and to grow. And yet this week, what we want to talk about is that it's equally important for Satan and for his timing, that when he does this is of utmost importance as well. And so if you look at this temptation narrative, we oftentimes sort of hone in on this fact that Jesus was hungry and thirsty. Because I think for us, we, we know that feeling of hunger and thirst. And so for 40 days, Jesus is wandering in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty. And Satan, in his first temptation, uses Jesus' hunger against him. And he says, look, if you can, why don't you turn these stones into pieces of bread? He uses his hunger against Jesus. And yet this week, in the second temptation, Satan will use something else. We have to remember that Jesus was not only in the wilderness, hungry and thirsty, but he was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights all alone, relationally hungry, socially hungry. He had not seen a single person for 40 days and for 40 nights. I mean, I think we all remember a taste of this, right, at the very beginning of the pandemic, Right In those initial two weeks, I certainly remember, man, I was lonely, I was isolated, I just wanted to talk, to, especially for me being an extrovert, I just needed to talk to somebody or someone. And this is before Zoom got big, right? This is when Zoom was still emerging for most of us uh, lay people in technology. Um, we didn't have all these tools, so those first 14 days were so incredibly isolating. And yet imagine Christ being alone for 40 days and for 40 nights, and it is here when Jesus is isolated that Satan takes advantage of this time. And in the same way, Satan's best chance at tempting you is when you're isolated. It's when you're all alone. And the more alone you are, the more isolated you are, the better off you are being picked off by him. Right, if you ever, if you ever watch a spy movie like James Bond or even if you watch uh, Captain America Winter Soldier, uh, right, whenever uh, the spy is attacking an enemy base, what do they do? They avert all the alarm systems, right? Because they don't want to sound the alarm because then a whole force of people, 10, 20 people will attack them. But what they do is they go one by one and they pick off each enemy silently, coming up behind them, right? Strangling them or knocking them out or doing something, right? They attack them one by one. Why? Because it's so much easier to pick people off one by one. 
If you remember in the garden, in Genesis chapter 3, what happens? Does Satan tempt Adam and Eve together? Does he say, hey, Adam and Eve, why don't you? No, what does he do? He isolates Eve. He finds her when she's all alone, void of God, void of Adam. And that's when he attacks. That's when he decides that temptation is at its best, is when they are isolated. And today in our culture, more than ever, right? This is pre-pandemic, by the way. This is pre-the virus, okay? More than ever today, I would argue that the fields are ripe for Satan to pick us off because we live in a culture of isolation. Let me, let me show you three ways in which this happens, right? The first is due to the times in which we live in. Uh, every other time, except for this one now, this modern era, everyone lived in this communal fashion. Uh, in fact, in order for you to live physically, to get food, to get water, to get supplies for your home, to have a shelter over your head, you needed social networks. In fact, marriage was not about love. It was about economics, right? You needed people and relationships in order to get stuff. And so you wouldn't buy and sell just from anyone. You would only buy and sell from people that you knew. This is why the Old Testament laws have many laws about, hey, you've got to take care of the foreigner, the stranger, because no one would buy and sell to a foreigner or to a stranger, you had to be able to take care of these people. And yet today, we don't have this issue. You go into Walmart, you go into Target, QFC, Trader Joe's, what have you. You could buy groceries without knowing anybody. But back in those days, you had to have relationships. You had to constantly be networking, building relationships in order to buy and sell and just to live. In addition, homes back then were incredibly tiny. Uh, you know, if you go to Bothell Landing, uh, even after church, just go to Bothell Landing. They have a little museum of homes. They preserved these homes from Bothell uh, about 100 years ago. And if you look at these homes, they're only, I think, I want, if I'm being generous, maybe 500 square feet. But I think they're anywhere between 300 to 400 square feet. They're preserved there in Bothell Landing. And if you look at the sign, it says that 14 people lived in that little home. It's nuts. There was no such thing as a single family home. Everyone lived together in one room all the time. You were just with people constantly. And yet today we have single family homes, four bedroom, 2.5 bath, right? 2,500 square feet, whatever, what have you, uh, right? And all of these things exist. We have our own private rooms. We have our own private sectors, isolated and independent of people in our family. And in Jesus' day, it was far worse. Like they lived in these tiny little huts. Uh, you, most times you had three, four, maybe five families living under one roof, all sharing the same spaces, breathing the same air, uh, eating the same foods, uh, living the same lives with each other. On top of the times we live in, the, the second thing that isolates us is technology, and I won't go too deeply into this, but very simply put, we feel connected because of technology when we're not really connected. Right? It's sort of like Costco samples. You, you feel like because you're sampling, you're actually getting full, but you're not really getting full. And although you know things about people because of social media, you don't really know them. It gives you the sense that you know people, but you don't really know them, further isolating us. Lastly, in addition to technology and the times we live in, it's also this idea of the cultural ideology that we live in today. What did I say last week, right? Satan works in the realm of ideas, and one of the ideas that he sold to us, that he's implanted in our minds, that he in some sense have incepted us with, is this idea that independence is far better than reliance, you got to be independent. you got to be your own person. You've got to shine through. You've got to be independent of anyone or anything. And let me give you an example of this, right? Let me ask you this. Would you be impressed by someone, right? Let's just say person A is here. Let's, would you be impressed by this person who owned the business, had their own home, but they told you, you know what? Mommy and daddy gave me both. 
this was mommy and daddy's business that they passed on to me, and this was mommy and daddy's money that bought me this home? Or would you be far more impressed with person A who says, I own my own business, I, I own my own home, and guess what? I did it all independent of anybody else. I did it all by myself. Most of us would say we'd be more impressed with this person. In fact, we would say, and it's not shameful, by the way, but we would say that saying these things would be more shameful. So which is why a lot of us cover it up, right? We don't, we don't say that mommy and daddy support us or that mommy and daddy did this for us because sometimes it's a little bit shameful to say that. Because in our culture, we've been led to believe that being independent is far greater. You are more respected. You are stronger. You are, you're, you're just a better person if you are independent and you've done everything by yourself. Women and men, we are both told by blogs, websites, Hollywood, that the only way people will respect you if you've done things independently. And this idea has grown and grown and grown in our minds, and it's even bled into the church. We actually believe that Christians who are independent are better Christians. Uh, let me give you an example. I remember when I was doing college ministry, this college student came up to me, and he was like, you know, Pastor Eric, I have this issue because I, man, I've been like, you know, there was a long time where I, you know, I was just in and out of the church, but then like I met these friends in college, and they're fantastic Christians, and man, me just being around them, I started worshiping, I started like doing my devotions, I just felt so close to Jesus. But every time we'd go on spring break, I'd go back home, or I'd go and we'd go on vacation, or whatever, or any time I was apart from them, I would fall back into my old ways. And like I keep going up and down, up and down, up and down, and like it's all reliant upon these, this community, really. And he said this to me, I want my faith to be my own. I want to be able to be on fire for Christ without them. I can't always rely on them to be on fire for my faith. And at the time, I agreed with him. At the time, I said, yeah, that's right. And I understand the thrust of what he's saying. He doesn't want to be like a copycat in some sense. But in another sense, as I look back on this, I realize that this is a lie Satan wants to give to us. That he wants us to believe that we have to be independent, we have to own our own faith, uh, just separated from community, and be able to have faith and fire on our own passion, on our own desires. So look, if you are in a community, and you are on fire for Jesus because of that community, because of the faith of others, well, guess what? Community is doing what it's supposed to be doing. That's exactly what it's supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be setting you on fire because of other people's passion for Jesus. And so don't feel ashamed. Don't feel that you're weak because you are weak. And the Bible says weakness is good because you are strong when you're weak. The Bible says to be humble and to rely upon Christ and to rely upon others. And that's what you're doing. You are doing exactly what the Bible has told you to do. So don't feel ashamed for that. You're relying on the faith of others. You know, even for me, like, I, you know, I don't want to boast or brag, and, and I'm not saying I should be special or something, but, 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 right, even as the lead pastor, right, I should have independent faith of anything, right? But that's not true. I can tell you right now, if I did not have a community, if I did not have other pastors walking with me, I too would doubt. I too would fail. I too would walk away from the church. My faith is not my own. It's reliant upon a community. This is why I'm a part of a CG. This is why I'm a part of a community group. This is why I meet regularly with other pastors. All the pastors that you saw up here during our summer series are men that I meet with regularly. Uh, in fact, in California, I have networks of pastor friends. And in fact, very recently, I told my wife, I think I need more lead pastors in my life. I need more men around me who are speaking into my life. So guess what I did? I like went to random churches and I, and I emailed them. And I just said, hey, you're a lead pastor. Can I meet with you? I'm a lead pastor too. Can we talk? Some of them didn't reply. Some of them did. And some of them I'm going to meet up with, and it was strange, but nonetheless, I did it because I knew that's what I needed. I needed a community of people around me in order to do this. I can't do it on my own. You know, in our membership class, I talk about doctrines that have been with us since the very beginning of time. 
And these are doctrines that are stable, true to the very end. And one of the doctrines that I talk about in our membership class is the doctrine of the church. And what's interesting to me is that from 30 AD on, when Jesus Christ was born, died, and when he went to heaven, right? From 33 AD on, for 2,000 years or whatever it is, right? Uh, every Christian of every time, place, generally from Africa to Asia to, to, to the Middle East, from every known part of the Christian universe, every Christian has believed in, in the church, it's only here in modern Western America where we have stopped believing in the church, where we say, all I need is Jesus, all I need is uh, my Bible and prayer, I don't need anyone else, I don't need any other thing, it's just me and Jesus. And yet you see, we're the only generation that believes in independent faith, and we think, oh, the church is not for me, the church is uh, for weak people, it's only for people who don't, you know, who don't have a strong faith with, with Jesus and prayer and Bible. This is a lie that has been sown into our hearts and into the, into the minds of every Christian. We need each other. And in isolation is where Satan will get us. And this is why all the more community is so important for each and every single one of us. Let's move into our second point, the lie in isolation. Now, on top of everything that I mentioned, right, the times we live in, technology, and also ideology, cultural ideology for today, on top of all of those things that separate us pre-pandemic, now you, you introduce the pandemic, and all of a sudden what you have here, you mix all these things together, what you have is essentially solitary confinement. I think we've been living in a kind of solitary confinement for so long now, and all of us are burning out because of it. And in this midst of this extreme isolation, one that the world has probably never seen or known before, here comes Satan's tempt tempt uh, temptation. Here comes a prime opportunity for him to lie to us. And let me share to you the lie that I think he's sharing with us in our isolation right now. Because we are in isolation. And I think the lie he shares here with Jesus is the same lie that he shares with us today. So take a look here starting at verse 5. Let's dive into the actual temptation now. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And so Jesus is in the wilderness. The devil somehow teleports him or transports him somehow onto the pinnacle into Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there's a holy temple, the biggest temple. Uh, it's the only temple where the holy of holies is. That's where God exists. And he takes him to the top of the temple, to the pinnacle of it. And he tells Jesus this in verse 6. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And there you have it again, right? Last week, what did I talk about? Satan will miscommunicate to you. And again, he says it again. If you are the son of God, are you sure you're the son of God? Are you really sure? I know at your baptism he said it, but are you sure that was really him? You didn't see him. You saw a dove. You saw some clouds parting. Are you sure you're the son of God? And then Satan goes ahead and he quotes scripture to Jesus. And mind you now, Satan knows scripture better than, he, than you know it. He knows it better than I know it. He's been studying it for thousands and thousands of years. He knows it better than we do. And he quotes to Jesus Psalm 91. And if you've been with us for some time during the pandemic playlist, which was a previous sermon series that we did here, uh, we preached on Psalm 91. And if you remember in this psalm, what is God essentially telling people? He's saying, look, trust me, I will protect you. In fact, I, I think it's summed up well best in, in Psalm 91, verse 14. The whole psalm here is summed up in one verse. It says this, because he holds me fast in love, I will deliver him. This is God talking. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. What Satan, do you see what the temptation is? Psalm 91 says God will protect you if he loves you. And what Satan is telling him is 
Are you sure God really loves you? Doesn't seem like he's protecting you right now. You're out here in this wilderness all by yourself. No bread, no water. Is he really protecting you? Are you sure he loves you? The lie here is in our isolation, the loudest lie Satan screams at you is one that says, God does not love you. Are you sure you're his child? Are you sure that's what he said to you? Because in our isolation, Satan will scream this into our hearts. And look, all the time, it doesn't always look like this. It doesn't always look like Satan's screaming at you, God doesn't love you, but sometimes it takes different forms. He'll say things like this to you, look at how ugly you are. How could anyone like you? Look at how unfashionable you are. Look at all those other beautiful, trendy people out there. Who could possibly love you? You're a failure. You dropped out of school. You know, you, you, you're, you're not doing well at your job. Everyone else is getting a promotion. What? You're a failure. You're a complete and utter failure. No one will like you. You're strange. You're weird. No one will get you. Don't even think about getting friends. And here's the one that really got me, especially during my single years. It was this. There's a reason why you're single, Eric. There's something wrong about you. Something that no one could ever love about you. I'm going to take a quick tangent here, but I don't know if you guys have ever seen Diet Coke and Mentos mixed together. Have you guys ever seen this before on YouTube? I think I brought this up as an illustration before. I know, really random. I'll bring it back. Don't worry. Have you ever seen Diet Coke and Mentos mixed together? Uh, if you ever do, and you can do this if you have kids, like on a nice summer day, just buy a two-liter bottle of Diet Coke, put it out uh, where it can't reach anybody, and just drop a few Mentos in there. And what will happen is basically it'll combust, and it'll explode outwards, and this fountain of Diet Coke will just start springing out of this two-liter bottle. It's, it's a, in essence, a little explosion. The reason why I'm talking about this is, have you ever tried to mix isolation with a little bit of comparison? You get the same effect in your heart. Have you ever tried to mix isolation with a little bit of social media at night? Your heart just starts to explode. There's all this chaos that runs through it. There's all these lies that begin to whip around in it. Nothing good comes from isolation and comparison, friends. When you isolate yourself and you're all alone in your dark room, at your dark desk, on your dark couch, in your dark living room, and you're sitting there all alone scrolling through social media, I'm telling you, that is fertile ground for Satan to begin speaking lies into your heart. Look at what they have. You don't have that. Does God really love you? Look at their wonderful kids. Look at how naughty your kids are. You think God really loves you? He would have given you better kids. Look, look, look at their home. Wow, look at how beautiful it is. Look at your home. It's a piece of trash. You think God would give you a piece of trash? He doesn't really love you. Isolation and comparison are fertile grounds for Satan to do his work, to have his way with us. And every single night, I would argue, we're sitting there giving Satan an opportunity to lie, to attack you. Look, friends, we have to remember in our darkest of moments, our baptism, what happens right before Jesus comes out to the wilderness is he's baptized and the Father himself parts the clouds, the dove descends down from heaven and, and the voice from heaven calls out to him and says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. This is before Jesus does a single drop of ministry. I preached on this on New Year's Eve. And friends, we have to remember our baptism. If you are a Christian here today, at some point in your life, you should have been baptized, whether as an infant or as an adult. And if you have not been baptized and you declare Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior and the waters of baptism have not touched you, please come talk to me. We would love to baptize you. But if you are a Christian and you have been baptized, we have to remember baptism. Do you know what baptism is? 
It's God's claim on you. The waters of baptism claim you. And Jesus says in baptism that you are mine. You are my child. You are royalty. You, I'm your father now, and you are my children, and you receive my love and my inheritance. We have to remember this constantly, friends. You know, I was telling the, uh, the, the 9 a.m. service, I just sort of added this in, but I was telling the 9 a.m. service this, that I believe, it is my absolute belief, I, I, I wonder this always about Scripture, why does God use the, the image of adoption to talk about his love for us? Because I think for a lot of us, you know, in the secular world, we think, oh, adoption is like a lesser form of love. And I would argue against that. I think adoption is the strongest kind of love. And this is why the Bible talks about adoption. This is why we support people like Kinship Connection where they're adopting people. Right? Because in our view, in Scripture's view, I believe adoption is the greatest form of love. And here's why. I'll, I'll take you on a little journey here with me, okay? Uh, my wife and I, uh, are, uh, my wife is uh, 39 weeks pregnant with our third child. I don't think I've ever talked about this here. But she's 39 weeks pregnant. We have two sons, and this last one's going to be a girl. And so we're really happy about it. But it was not always so, all right? Uh, although we are so happy that she's going to be arriving any moment now, uh, it was not always so because when we were first deciding on this, we had a moment of emotionality where we're like, oh, what, what, what would it be like to have three kids? And so we we're like, yeah, let's try. And so for one week, we tried. And then after that week was over, my wife was like, no ways can we have three kids. My wife was doing a master's education. Uh, she was teaching full-time. I was doing full-time ministry. We have two rambunctious kids. There was no way we could handle a third. And yet four weeks later, my wife comes to me and says, I, here's the pregnancy test. It's, we're having a baby. And all of a sudden, my wife broke down in tears, not tears of joy, but tears of sorrow. She was so sad because she was like, how are we going to handle this, Eric? What can we do? And so in some sense, this baby, although it's going to be loved in church, it's an oopsie baby. It's a kind of a, oh, we didn't plan for a baby. And I'm sure there are many of you in this room who are parents, maybe had a oopsie baby, or maybe you are a whoopsie baby, right? But here's the thing about adoption. I've never seen a whoopsie adoption. I've never seen an adoption where parents are like, whoops, I adopted them by accident. Oh my goodness, what happened here? Adoption is always a choice that the parent makes. I see you and I'm adopting you. I love you. I choose you. And the parent says, look, I've seen you in all your junk and all your mess, but I'm going to choose to love you as my own child. And this is a far greater love, friends, because there's never any mistakes in adoption. It's always a choice. It's always strategy. It's always very specific. And Jesus comes to us in our baptism, and he says, look, I'm adopting you. I've chosen you. I saw you in your sin and in your mud and in your, 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 your ugly sinness, and yet I adopted you. I chose you. I washed you, and I cleansed you. Don't you ever deny me my love for you. And in your moments of isolation, we have to remind ourselves of the truth of our baptisms. Even as you take a shower, I do this oftentimes, or if I'm taking a bath, I literally remind myself I was baptized. I was washed. I was cleansed, and in the waters, Jesus Christ claimed me as his own, as his own child. Friends, remind yourself again and again in your isolation and in your moments of darkness of the love that Christ has for you. Let's move on to our third and final point, the power of God's love. You know, as I mentioned last week in my sermon, Jesus is recapitulating the Israelites. He's reliving the temptation experiences that the Israelites faced during their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And he's doing it in 40 days. Uh, and here again, he's recapitulating one of the temptations that the Israelites failed. 
Uh, in Exodus 17, you may remember this if you grew up, you grew up in church, uh, right? There's a, there's a moment where the, where the Israelites are like, we're thirsty. We have no water to drink. Give us water. What the heck are you doing? And so Moses complains to God, and then he strikes the rock, and this water comes out of the rock. And this is what it says in Exodus chapter 17, verse 3, which is where we get this story from. The Israelites say this, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? It sounds very similar to last week, doesn't it? And yet listen to what Leon Moore says about this. He's a, he's a biblical scholar, and he's writing about this temptation. He says, but the way the incident is reported makes it clear that a demand for the miraculous, such as the ones the Israelites made for the, rock, uh, the water to come out of the rock, is not acceptable. In other words, what the Israelites requested of God was not acceptable to God. This was their testing. The servants of God cannot demand that God should keep on intervening with miraculous provision for their needs to jump from a height and then look to God to avert the natural consequences of such an act is just such an offense. Later on in Deuteronomy, um, uh, the Israelites will go back and look fondly and look back at that time. Uh, oh, sorry, sorry not, not, not in uh, Deuteronomy, but in Exodus here, uh, the, the writer will comment a little bit on what's happening here. And listen to what he says here in verse 7. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested. Massa means testing and Meribah means quarreling. Do you see what's happening here, right? They are trying to control God. They are trying to test God's love. They are trying to manipulate God by doing what they want through miraculous means. And the same is being thrusted onto Jesus Christ himself. And the reason why we test is because we don't believe. Right? Why do you test a student? Because you don't believe. You, they, have to, they, have, they have to prove themselves, right? You don't believe they can do the math, so you give them a test to prove that they know the math. You give them a test on their vocabulary so that they can prove, right? And we test God because we don't ultimately believe that he's trustworthy, that he is lovely, that he is good, and that he is all these things for our good and for his glory. Look at how Jesus responds to this lying temptation in verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And where he's getting this from is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And this is where the Israelites are now reflecting back. And listen to what it says. It says exactly what Jesus says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you did, as you tested him at Massa. And then look what verse 17 goes on to say. This part is really interesting to me. It says in verse 17, the verse right after, you shall diligently keep the commandments. What the heck? Wait, wait, so uh, you shall not test the Lord your God, and then it says, uh, keep his commandments. How are the two related? What is going on here? And here's what I think is happening. Whenever we test God, what we're actually asking God to do is to obey me, to obey us instead of us obeying him. Whenever we test God, we're saying, God, if you don't give me this job, if you don't give me this child, if you don't give me this house, you don't love me. You listen to me, God. You do exactly what I say, and then I'll believe you love me. But if you don't, you don't love me. We're asking for God's obedience versus us obeying God. Stop asking God for a miracle. Stop testing God. Stop asking God to obey you and accept the love that he's already given to you, friends. He's already gave you his word. He's already gave you his son, Jesus Christ. He gave us his spirit, and he gave us his church. In other words, let me put it like this. One of the primary ways we can feel God's love is not through the extraordinary miracles of casting ourselves from a temple and asking God to catch us, but actually in the ordinary things of life, in the ordinary church, 
in the ordinary relationships that we build here, in the ordinary things here in this building that we can call home because this is a body and we belong to it. Friends, in the ordinary things, we can feel and find the love of God himself. Look, the church in 1 Corinthians is called the hands and feet of Christ. Why? Because it is his presence on earth. If we want to feel the love of Christ, if we want to feel his presence, it begins with the relationships that exist in church, the body, the hands and feet of Christ himself that are in this church. We say this all the time. Church is not a building. It's a people. And this is how you will feel the love of Christ is with people, is, is being in relationship with them, is being in community with other Christians. Look, do you, do you understand that this idea of isolation coming back to you has bled into the Christian consciousness and even into the gospel itself? Right? We believe that the gospel is personal, and it is personal in some sense. Jesus Christ died for me. But we also have to remember that the gospel is far bigger than just me. The gospel is about God saving all peoples, his kingdom. What does Jesus preach about? He doesn't preach. He preaches the repentance, of, uh, uh, repentance and forgiveness of sins. But he also preaches his kingdom. He says the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like that. Why? Because his gospel is about his kingdom, about his people, about his church, about his bride. And ultimately, the gospel is far bigger than just you and me. And Jesus saved his church. He cleansed his church so that we can be the hands and feet, so that people in the church can experience his love, so that people outside the church can experience his love, so that we can be hands and feet to other people of Jesus Christ. And yet here's what I want to propose to you, that the reason why, the reason why we isolate and one of the reasons why we don't love is because we're all hurt. And we've had hurts, and those are real hurts, and I don't want to minimize those hurts. Each and every single one of us have been hurt by church members, have been hurt by others, and so have I. I've been hurt by the church many, many times. You know, um, my son, my oldest son, Josiah, he's uh, four and a half, and uh, he recently had one of his, uh, he recently declared one of his first best friends. Uh, at school, there's a boy named Aiden, and um, him and Aiden get along really, really well. And so his mother asked if, uh, you know, we could have a play date together. And um, I remember uh, specifically, they, you know, when, when Josiah saw Aiden, uh, even at school, and, and when he came over to our house, uh, he just, he looked at Aiden with this big smile. He went up to Aiden, gave him a big hug, and he said, Aiden, I love you. You're my best friend. And I was like, yeah, exactly. I was like, oh, so sweet. But it was weird because although it was really sweet, there was kind of a second emotion that I had. It was like a secondary emotion that I had a little bit later, and it was of this feeling of kind of uncomfortableness. And I kind of looked deeper into why I was a little bit uncomfortable about my son saying that. But ultimately, I think the reason why I was uncomfortable was because ultimately, I, I wondered if Aiden would say it back to him. I wondered if Aiden would say, I love you too. You're my best friend, which he did, by the way. He did say those things. But initially, I was like, oh, you're coming out too strong, buddy. You, you got to reel it back a little bit. Like, don't come out that strong. But I realized I was reading my insecurities into my own son. And what I witnessed there for the first time in my life was love that was never hurt. My son's heart has, been, has never been hurt, has never been rejected, has never felt this kind of communal pain. And this is what it looks like. It looks like somebody going up to somebody saying, I love you. You're my best friend. Let's go hang out together. And yet the reason why we don't love, the reason why we withhold, the reason why we are a little bit hesitant sometimes is because you and I have been hurt. And this is why all the more we have to live into our baptism once again. We have to live into the fact that Christ loved us, that Christ cleansed us, that Christ has given us his righteousness, that Christ has given us a new identity, a new life. 
that we are like my son. We have been born again. And because we're born again, we can love like we've been born again. Like we can love in this community like we've been born again. And friends, my encouragement to you, even today, and I told this to the first service, and I know I'm going to make things weird here, is that if there are people in your community group that are here that you appreciate, that you love, go up to them and say, I love you. You're my best friend. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're a part of this church. I'm so glad that you're a part of this community. I rely upon you. Your strength is my strength. Your, your, your love means that, man, I, that, that's why I, I can make it through the day sometimes. Please share, especially in an Asian American context, man. We are good at suppression and repression. Oh, I love you, but I'm never going to share it with you. <laughs> let's take a step and let's start reaching out to each other and just telling each other, I love you. I rely upon you because this is what the gospel commands of us. This is what scripture commands us to do. Let's obey God. Let's be weak. Let's be humble. Let's not be strong. Let's not be self-reliant. Let's not be proud. Let's be weak, humble people who rely upon each other. And in that, eliminate this isolation. I know during the season, especially over the next few weeks or so, it's going to be tough doing community. And we have to utilize things like Zoom. But at the same time, we cannot give up on this fight of community and really loving each other and not isolating ourselves to the best of our abilities. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, I know that there are people in this room right now, Lord. Maybe last night, Lord, the devil was speaking slanderous lies into their hearts, telling them that they're unworthy, telling them that they're failures. And Lord, maybe they were living into that lie, Lord, even up until this morning, Lord, at church. Lord, I pray and I ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would cast all of these lies out of their heart, every single piece of it. And Lord, would you replace it with their baptism? Would you remind them of your love, your claim on them, their adoption? Would you remind them of your grace and your love that was spilled out for them on the cross, Lord? Over and over again, would you sing that sweet song to them, Lord, of their baptism? And Lord, we pray, God, that we would be a church that lives into our baptism, that we would live out of our identity of baptism and love one another and sacrifice and share, not just in this church, but even outside the church, to our friends and to our neighbors who are in need of love and care. Lord, we pray that the enemy's lies would never take hold in this church, would never take hold in anybody's hearts, but Lord, that the truth of your love would reign forevermore from here on out and forevermore amen lord we pray this all in your son's holy and precious name amen